0: If everything on land were to die tomorrow, everything in the ocean would be fine. But if everything in the ocean were to die tomorrow, everything on land would die too.
1: That's Alana Mitchell, author of the groundbreaking book Seasick: The Global Ocean in Crisis. Ten years after its release, we talked to the author of this award-winning work about the current state of our oceans and more. On this edition of Explore, a Canadian geographic podcast brought to you by One Ocean Expeditions. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a, a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We right Simpson about June 10th,
0: with the fur brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each man by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means that in oral history.
1: is very strong. Every little low over every inch of the country that it could be. We're hoping that he would fire at it. Oh, I guess 160. Well, I'm first for Canada. Welcome to Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast, where we talk to the world's leading explorers about how Canada, its landscape, people, wildlife, and history have shaped their spirit of discovery. I'm your host, David McGuffin a veteran foreign correspondent with CBC and CTV News, and a senior editor for NPR News in Washington, DC. Our guest today is Alana Mitchell, science writer and fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Mitchell has arguably done more than any single person to ring alarm bells internationally about the rapidly deteriorating state of our oceans due to climate change and the danger that poses to us and other species on this planet. In 2009, when Seasick was released, it quickly became an international bestseller, won the prestigious Grantham Award. It then morphed into a popular TED Talk and is now a one woman show, which Mitchell is performing around the world, including this August at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival.
0: This is not my father's science. In my father's day, a scientist would spend a whole career trying to figure out the life cycle of a single creature how many babies it had, what it ate, how it spent the winter. It was all leisurely. It was all happening despite us, without us. Scientists were just trying to unlock the timeless secrets of nature, trying to get a glimpse of nature's plan. Today, they're racing to try to figure out how one single species, humans, is radically altering nature's plan. And I realize this is all about carbon. Carbon and the missing dimension time.
1: A native of Regina, Saskatchewan, Mitchell has been one of Canada's leading science journalists and authors for decades. She got her start at the Financial Post and then the Toronto Globe and Mail. She's written about everything from cancer to climate change, evolution to Arctic exploration, and most recently, a book about why the Earth's magnetic poles may be about to flip positions and what that means for all of us. I'm taping this in the Sir Christopher Ondaatje reading room at the headquarters of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, overlooking one of the world's great exploration routes, the Ottawa River. But for our interview with Alana Mitchell, explore when on the road to Mitchell's home in the east end of Toronto, and we began our conversation with a look back at seasick and how the oceans are faring today. So
0: seasick... It's about how humans are affecting the global ocean, and the short story is that we're making it warm, breathless, and sour. That's the evil troika. Mm-hmm. As we put carbon dioxide up into the atmosphere, as we burn fossil fuels, the ocean is absorbing something like 80 percent of the extra heat that is captured by all this carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it's, it's getting warmer. It's it's the temperature is is warming. There's also a chemical reaction between the water and the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that creates carbonic acid. So the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere actually reacts chemically with the water to make carbonic acid, which floods the ocean with acid and changes its pH. So the ocean's becoming more sour. And it's also becoming breathless, so parts are now devoid of oxygen. And that's just a big problem when you're thinking about the ocean as the life support system of the planet.
1: To what degree is it the life support system
0: on the planet? Um, well, the way one scientist put it to me is that if everything on land were to die tomorrow, everything in the ocean would be fine. But if everything in the ocean were to die tomorrow, everything on land would die too. Well, why, why? Well, because it's the what they call the biogeochemical pump of the planet. So it is it is a major part of the carbon cycle of the planet, the oxygen cycle of the planet, the nitrogen system. All of these systems are controlled by what goes on in the ocean.
1: And I guess it makes sense. I mean, the Earth is mostly ocean to begin with. It's
0: 71% or so of the surface, but it's about 99% of the living space on the planet.
1: So I like to think that I keep up on things. And To be honest, a lot of this I didn't really know about. I knew about coral reefs dying off. I think I knew piecemeal parts of this. You're like everybody. So how are we missing this as a species? If it's this important, like what's going on? And how did you come across it?
0: I started researching this. I mean, my book on this came out ten years ago, so mm-hmm. I started researching it several years before that. I think I was working at the Globe and Mail at that point as a science reporter, and I kept seeing all these these papers and these meetings and the you know scientists sort of raising uh, you know raising these balloons, these alerts saying you know what things are going on with the ocean. We don't understand exactly what's going on, but we need to understand it better. It was so. People used to say that the ocean was dying, um, which I'm not sure is actually true. But mm-hmm. it's changing. The ocean is changing chemically, and as I was researching the book Seasick, I suddenly realized, "Wow, chemistry determines biology. Chemistry determines biology. Chemistry determines biology, and we're changing the chemistry of the ocean." Wow. And it was just this, this light bulb went off. And I thought, "Holy Toledo! Uh, this is this is um, this is life or death stuff."
1: I mean, you traveled all around the world researching this. Um, Is there a place or a moment that you felt sort of encapsulated just how far wrong we've gone?
0: Well, it was the coral spawning in Panama. It was one of the first journeys. I was still trying to figure out how to write about this. I was still trying to figure out what the story was. I didn't know when I first started researching the book, Seasick, that we were in such trouble. Today, you can find a bunch of books and a bunch of academic papers that put the whole picture together. When I started doing this um, more than 10 years ago, the pieces were not in place. I remember so clearly traveling from you know one research ship to another research ship, and these were all people right at the top of their game. These were some of the best scientists in the world. And I would go from one journey to the next, and I would tell the, the new group of scientists, oh, this is what I just found out. And they would say, really? And <laughs> it was, nobody was really putting these pieces together. Anyway, I was in Panama, one of the first journeys, still trying to figure out if there was really even a book to write. And it was a coral spawning. And coral spawnings just happen once a year, so these corals, these little animals, you know, that build the reefs, they save up all their energy all year for this one moment when they all get to have sex at the same precise time. And that's how they survive is right. is by doing that. And they release their eggs and sperm up into the water column, hoping that they will eventually connect with somebody else's egg and sperm and, mm-hmm. you know, make baby corals. That's the whole principle of it. It happens that they have to have this incredibly <laughs> keen sense of timing. And so What you're hoping for there when the corals spawn is that you get 95% of the corals, or you know, really high 90s. A whole bunch of the corals are going to spawn. Well, that year, 25% of them spawned. So there we were watching this thing. It's magical. It's this. It's this ritual of life, right? That's been going on for uh, half a billion years. Half a billion on our planet, and it, it under all these different circumstances, under all these different you know stages of duress. But this particular time was a year of great bleaching. Uh, so there was a lot of warmth in the water, and the corals were unhealthy. They were tired and they were hungry. So they got to the one moment of the year when they could reproduce, and only 25% of them could even do it. Wow. It was just this horrible realization of uh, how much we've screwed up. This is all happening at the hand of us humans, you know.
1: So, and just to underscore how important is coral to the life of the
0: ocean? Corals are the nursery of the ocean, so the coral animals build these big reefs out of calcium carbonate, and and the reefs become home to... It's certainly more than half of the creatures that we like to fish, that we like to eat, Mm -hmm. (laughs) spend part of their life cycle on coral reefs somewhere in the world. They're important. you know. They're considered to be Mm -hmm. one of the critical habitats on the planet. And And they're dying. I mean, they are really... Actually, I went back and interviewed a bunch of the scientists who I'd interviewed for the book because I'm writing a piece for Canadian Geographic magazine mm-hmm. updating some of the science. So we went back to some of the scientists I had really spent a lot of time with, and one of them said, you know, corals are not going to survive. It's not going to happen. Flat there's, out. There's flat out, there's nothing we can do. She's still trying. I mean, she's still trying to figure out, you know, how we could reintroduce them, what we could do, but she's under no illusions. Huh. Yeah.
1: That's, that's terrifying.
0: It's, you know, it's a huge part of the ocean system. The animals themselves may survive in some form. The reefs will not.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, You also wrote about these dead zones that are happening in the ocean too, which I also found chilling. Um, Can you tell us more about that?
0: So there are parts of the ocean, well, let's say they're usually in coastal parts of the ocean, that have little or no oxygen. They're called... Uh, well, the one that I went to was called the blob. Mm. Um, the scientists affectionately named it the blob. It's in the Gulf of Mexico. It's stunning to be there. I was on a ship with a bunch of scientists who were trying to look at the whole water column. So they were looking at creatures of all different sizes and shapes, right down to the, you know, the microplankton and all that kind of stuff, just to see what could survive in this zone where there was little or no oxygen. And there was nothing. There was just nothing. One of the scientists was looking for uh, for fish, and he was trawling mm. at all these different levels of the water column. Yeah. And uh, night after night after night, day after day after day, nothing he got in his nets. And and finally, he said, you know, I think there must be something wrong with my nets. You know, there has to be something alive in this. And right. so we took the ship, and we we steered it out into part of the the gulf that still had uh, oxygen in it, because, you know, you can tell with mm-hmm. the sensors whether there is and there isn't. And he threw his nets in, and tons of fish right you know whatever is there just simply dies or leaves the area so you've got these parts of the global ocean that should be really thriving Mm -hmm. with life but instead there's nothing there and that's because of in this case in the case of the gulf of mexico what's really happening is that there are farmers all up and down the mississippi river and mississippi river ends in the gulf of mexico so all up and down this watershed farmers are putting synthetic fertilizers on their crops to make them grow, so that's nitrogen and phosphorus. And this nitrogen and phosphorus, they're putting so much on that it flows into the water shed, flows down the Mississippi River, and it it just goes off into the Gulf of Mexico like a faucet of chemicals. And it makes the algae go crazy, right? Because they're plants Mm. too, just like the soybean, the corns up on land. These phytoplankton just love this this fertilizer, and they just reproduce like crazy, and they um, make these big algal blooms, which can be quite toxic. But the other element to it is that there's nothing to eat them. They're so massive, these algal blooms, that mm. there's nothing to eat them. So the algae die, and they fall to the bottom of the seabed floor. Right. And then bacteria start to decompose them. And as they decompose them on the bottom of the seabed floor, they use up the oxygen in the water column. And so really from this one little spot on the seabed floor at the mouth of the Mississippi River in the Gulf of Mexico, the dead zone spreads along the bottom and in some cases right up to the top of the water column. The year I was there, it was a huge dead zone. It changes year to year depending on Mm. how much rainfall there is, how much fertilizer is put in, but it's, um, I think, the second biggest in the world, that
1: one. So that's, I mean, that's fertilizer, which isn't necessarily, I mean, that's not climate change, but, I mean, that seems like something we can fix fairly easily. We
0: um, could fix that. There are other dead zones that are caused by climate change, and that's the scariest part. Um, There are now, I think the figure is 480 dead zones, Mm -hmm. major enough to be counted in coastal parts of the ocean, but there are also some that are off the coast of North America and Africa that are caused by changes to the climate itself. And that's really scary for scientists because they don't know when the next ones will show up, where they'll show up, and how big they're going to be. And that's combined with, at the same time, the ocean is getting warmer, and so it's absorbing less oxygen. So you just have a general deoxygenation of the global ocean. Not in the cold waters, like the Arctic and the Southern Mm -hmm. Ocean, but in the warmer waters.
1: I heard about fish migrating north. Is that yeah. a phenomenon that's going on?
0: Absolutely. Fish are not just migrating north. They're migrating away from continents because the water, the shallower water is getting warm. So there's this whole flight of life from the equator toward the poles and away from the continents. And what is that? What are the implications for that? They move at different rates and they move in different assemblages. So the thing about living in the ocean is that you're dependent on the other things in your ecosystem right. for survival. And so these creatures are moving to places where their food is not necessarily present Mm -hmm. or they're displacing another species that then has to move further north. And so this whole web of life that has been so painstakingly evolved over all these billions of years is shifting.
1: So you wrote this 10 years ago. The message you gave, you have hope that humans have done this so we can undo it. And I'm just wondering 10 years have now passed where you are on that hope.
0: You know, this is one of the toughest things. Um, you know, one of the hardest things is the, the most recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which said last year that we had only 12 years to avert the worst social breakdown. And that's a really stunning deadline. I think they meant it to be a prod, to be honest and bold. Mm-hmm. Um, but... When that happens, and, you know, within a calendar year, you have governments all over the world that are not only failing to respond, but are actively campaigning for election on the grounds that we don't need to do anything important about climate change, and that's been happening. It's extremely sobering. It's quite difficult to um, retain hope in the face of all that. It's, in fact, it's quite a struggle. I think it's going to take something even more cataclysmic than that. It's a hinge moment in our civilization, in the history of our civilization. It will very shortly go either one way or the other. And I think there are some incredibly positive signs, like the climate strikes that kids are launching all over the world, You know, telling us, telling us adults, these are kids who can't even vote. <laughs> right. And they're telling us, our generation, that we have to do something and we're still not there. So this is the moment. This is the moment that's going to make all the difference, not just for us, but for all sorts of different species. We don't have the time or luxury to delay anymore. And I think there are lots of people who get that, and there are, unfortunately, people in power who don't, who are too intent on maintaining an old system that isn't working anymore. And, and this is the great battle.
1: I mean, It seems like a lot of the inaction that comes from fear and lack of understanding doesn't it
0: I think people understand I don't think there's a lack of understanding I don't think that this is going to get any better with more and more precise evaluations of what the science is saying the science is really clear on this and not just clear we can see around us in our own backyards what's going on this is not a mystery I think it's fear I think it's I think it's hard to know for you and me sitting here in our Canadian city, what it will look like when things change. Like, how will I heat my home? What does that look like? What is the recipe for that? It's really, really easy to say that things need to change and it's really easy to say that they need to change now, but what we need is a recipe we need for somebody whose duty it is to you know, manage our country and run our country to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to get there. This is a vision of our society. And it's not just our country. It's global. That's obviously global. And so far, we've got little hints of that, but we don't have that as far as I can see. We've got really great plans. We've got promises. We've got a pull, a tug between moving ahead, moving backward, that's that's happening, uh, you know, almost on a decision-by-decision, decision, mm. province-by-province, country-by-country basis. And I really think the time has come for us all to just say, okay, we're going to do this. We got this. We're going to pull in the same direction and just get it done. It's not a technological problem anymore. This is a cultural problem. That's what this is.
1: You've written so many things I'm fascinated in. Your latest book is The Spinning Magnet which is about our Earth, and the fact that our poles change places, in the broader sense, on a fairly regular basis. And a headline I saw, and I think a lot of people twigged into, was the fact that Magnetic North is moving fairly quickly out of Canada and into Siberia. I think the headline I saw was Magnetic North hurtling towards Siberia. It's like 55 kilometers a year. So is this the flipping that you're talking about going on?
0: Well, the short answer is that they they don't have a clue. Mm. They just simply can't tell. So, it, this is about trying to predict what's happening inside the core and really there's nothing... Scientists have no theoretical or observational models to predict whether that's happening. So, it's, it's a great big huge question mark. What it does tell us though is that there's a lot of volatility within this core where the Earth's magnetic field is generated. And sometimes, when there's a tremendous amount of volatility, that does mean they think that the poles are getting ready to flip. Are they actually flipping now? It's, we just can't say.
1: So one of the things you've found when you were looking into this is that people think we're probably due, though, for a flip.
0: Um, well, the last time the poles reversed places was 780,000 years ago, so before we were here. And in general, um, scientists think that they flip places roughly every 300,000 years.
1: So what are the implications if we are flipping poles right now?
0: Ah, uh, Well, that's, that's the most fascinating thing. It's the world that we've built, our modern civilization is built on electromagnetism. So electricity and electronics, all that kind of stuff is linked into the electromagnetic fields that, that are part of what create our universe. And when the poles are reversing, what that means is that the magnetic shield that helps to protect our planet from solar and galactic radiation becomes only about a tenth of its usual strength, and it stays at a tenth of its usual strength for probably hundreds to thousands of years as these poles do this great migration from you know one side of the planet to the other. So for that entire time, or most of that time, our planet is much more exposed to galactic and solar radiation, which means that solar storms and all of this radiation from the sun can interfere with all of these electric structures that we've built. That's the thing that scientists are most worried about, is that as the poles are reversing and the magnetic shield wanes, that there will be a lot more magnetic interference with all of these electrical structures that we've built. And in
1: terms of the electrical grid, in terms of satellites, in terms of all that is
0: well, we rely on electricity. Everything we do now, right down to, as I mean, there was this really interesting forensic analysis of a near miss. There was a terrible, like an extraordinary solar storm in July of 2012. Mm-hmm. And it happened, so that, again, there's just this massive, massive uh, you know, pulse of magnetized plasma that you know, was sent off from the sun in this immense solar storm. It happened that the sun and the earth were not facing each other at that time at least the the part of the sun that was flaring flaring wasn't facing the the earth and so it didn't hit the earth. But you had all these spacecraft up there looking at what was happening and so this thing happened, it was astonishing, scientists said, oh my goodness, we had no idea this was coming, but they did a forensic analysis of what had happened, and then they did an analysis of what would have happened had the thing happened 10 days earlier when the sun and the earth were facing, Were facing, and it was just catastrophic. What they came up with was, uh, you know, the grids would have been destroyed, and not just for hours but for months and years and decades
1: so you think of that was that big blackout several years ago
0: in in quebec in 1989 yeah yeah, that was several hours but the thing is that our grids are more and more interconnected when you talk to scientists about this stuff they are not like this is not an imminent thing this is not where nobody is saying that this is going to happen tomorrow Mm -hmm. it's one of those conceptual risks at this moment But the thing that makes scientists worry about it is that we're not prepared. That's the thing that they get concerned about. When they put it into the historical context, what they say is that we've built up this extreme dependence on electricity for all of our, you know, for civilization. And we've done that during a time when the Earth's magnetic field has been pretty strong. So as the Earth's magnetic field is becoming weaker, and that's true, it is becoming weaker... And as we are increasing our dependence on electricity, all of those grids, all of those systems are becoming increasingly interconnected. And that's a problem.
1: And so what do we do to protect ourselves?
0: Again, this is something that there's some research on and and not a lot of research, but one of the things that some scientists are working on is trying to get some early warning systems so that we have a little bit of lead time to shut down, say, nuclear reactors and some of the grids that are interconnected and that kind of thing, to do it a little bit more strategically. But frankly, that research is not strong at this point.
1: Wow. So what do we do with that?
0: I think it demands, on one hand, a philosophical response. I mean part of it is realizing that we are on this planet that we do not control. Mm-hmm. There are lots of things that we have a hand in now on our planet. We talk about climate change and the fact that our species, our single species has become a geological force on mm-hmm. the planet like volcanoes have been in, in years past. But And those are things we can do something about, but, but this is not, this is something that we just have to watch unfold. And we have to, I think it's worth preparing for. Mm-hmm. That's what at least what many of the scientists I was talking to are thinking about. They say, you know, we could prepare for this. We could protect ourselves. Other people, I've talked to them, other scientists as well, and they say, you know, probably by the time this is going to affect us in, you know, who knows, but maybe it could be hundreds of years, mm-hmm. unclear. Maybe our systems of power and electricity will be so different that we won't have to worry about this. That's one of the things that they comfort themselves with.
1: Yeah. Okay, so fingers crossed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Can I take you back to your childhood? Sure. Let's go to sunnier times. (laughs) Um, So you grew up, tell me where you grew up, and um, who were your parents?
0: I grew up in Regina. Mm -hmm. um, Saskatchewan? Saskatchewan, yeah. And uh, my mom was a painter. She was a visual artist, so she had a studio in the backyard. They built, my parents built it at one point after my mother finished art school. So she had this great studio in the backyard. And it was just filled with light and paint and canvases. And she used to be out there all the time painting the prairie.
1: Nice landscapes and
0: they were all abstract, highly abstract. That's one of hers there, actually.
1: No, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, it's like a nice river scene. Like that's yeah. a very looks very prairie.
0: One of the very rare rivers. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm only kidding. Yeah. So she used to paint. Um, and uh, my dad was a biologist who taught at the University of Regina, and he made his whole. Well, he fell in love with the pronghorn antelope. Mm. That, was, that was the animal he studied. He was one of the first scientists in the world to study it.
1: Yeah. And you've, uh, I just don't want to plug this, but you've just been nominated for a magazine, National Magazine Award, for a story you did about his love of pronghorns and growing up with that. And it's in Canadian Geographic, and I encourage people to read it because it is lovely. But he, uh, what I found fascinating, too, is just about how his world of science compared to the world of science you're looking at, too, I think, it's which are so very different.
0: Well, he was the first provincial biologist in Alberta, and then he moved, when I was a small child, to, to Regina to start teaching biology. But at that time, they were trying to work out the basics, absolute basics. They did not know how many young an antelope had. They didn't know what the animals ate. There's this fascinating paper my dad wrote That looked at the stomach contents of hundreds of pronghorn antelope Mm
1: -hmm. caught
0: in Alberta because he just wanted to know what the heck they ate. It was was just down to that that sifting
1: through grasses, basically sifting
0: through cud. Cud.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Grasses soaked in stomach acid.
0: Basically, yeah, that was what he did, and and identifying them. You know, like so, and, and they came out with this neat little paper. This is what they like to eat in southern Alberta. So it was really basic stuff. It was just, you know, how does this particular species work? How does it survive the winters? You know, all this kind of stuff. And then eventually he got interested in ecology. So he became one of the early ecologists in North America, trying to figure out how all the pieces of the prairie ecosystem work together. Mm -hmm. And that was considered really avant-garde. It was considered a bit of a soft science ecology at that point, you know. And then eventually he got into conservation science. So how, you know, how would you preserve something that was really getting into trouble? And at that time, I think it was like unlocking a puzzle it was like trying to figure out the code for how the world had been put together Mm -hmm. you know there was a code that nature had and he was trying to crack that code trying to figure out what nature had done to make all this stuff happen and why and now it seems to me the scientists I talk to are trying to work out how our species is altering that code and that's a fundamental difference
1: Mm
0: -hmm. you know when my dad was
1: right right but for him to go to make that shift, like you say, which, which was a very new thing to do, but that really is how science is studied now, basically. Like He's sort of laying the template in a lot of ways.
0: Well, he and many other people, I mean, yeah, they, they, but, you know, they realized that they had to put all these pieces together and, yeah. and really understand how they worked together. And then now it's not just how they work together. Now the big shift is how humans are affecting how they work together. That's the thing that's so stunning, is that our species, a single species, has made this kind of change on the planet. We've pushed the planet's life support systems to places that they haven't been for millions of years. That's what we have done as a species, and in a very, very brief time. Right. You know, less than 300 years. Uh, This is getting depressing. um, No, I know. Let's go back to (laughs) pronghorns. (laughs) What about those pronghorns? So...
1: so they're beautiful animals, right? And they look very un-North American, right? They seem like, oh, when I look at them, they look they look very much like an antelope you'd find in the Masai Mara or in the Serengeti or something springing around. And...
0: Well, they're an antelope. Uh, yeah, they used to be called antelope. They're not called antelope now, but my dad always called them pronghorn antelope. And he used to say they're the only antelope in North America because, you know, some of the cousins, um, not direct relatives, but cousins are the antelope in Africa.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so your childhood was full of pronghorns, I'm guessing. In some way or another, they were very present in your life. And-
0: pronghorns were everywhere when I was a kid. We had this head. I write about it in this article, actually, but we had this mounted head. It was a buck pronghorn that my dad shot. can't remember when now, but long, long before I was born. And, um, and he had this thing stuffed and mount it on the wall. And I think, he, in fact, that he brought this into the marriage when my parents got married. He was really proud of this thing. Mm-hmm. My mother took one look at this thing. And it said, not, not on my living room walls and uh, banished it to the basement. But this thing was a feature of our childhood. We actually, you know, it was just there. It was uh, like a, a witness to our lives.
1: Yeah, but it sounds like, I mean, you grew up in a house full of science but, and art as well. So you've kind of crafted the, the two together. Uh,
0: that's what I hope that I've done. I mean, that, I think that was the intent. The the thing with my dad was um, he believed that information should be shared. Mm-hmm. You know, he passionately believed in the democratization of science, that if scientists were finding stuff out, that people should know about it. He wanted people to know what the scientific understanding of the world was. And he took it really seriously. It was, uh, apart from the pronghorn, it was the passion of his life. And I think I got that from him. Mm-hmm. I, I never became a scientist, but I love to write and so for me it was using the art form that i felt comfortable with to democratize science yeah i've spent you know a lot of my life doing that
1: i have a couple questions i ask everybody and one of them is in your travels and you do travel a fair bit is there a good luck charm you bring with you is there a piece of equipment you never leave home with
0: something that reminds you of home or oh i bring color i have to have color explain that So it can be a swatch of color, it can be a um, piece of cloth, it can be a scarf, for example, it can be uh, actually a piece of painted paper, but I have to have color. Mm. Um, Color makes my brain work better. Like I spent a lot of time on ships when I was researching seasick, and ships can be ugly. Uh, They're great for what they're doing, but they're not...
1: They're completely utilitarian. Yeah,
0: and I guess it's bringing art. And for me, because my mother was a painter, art is colour, and so I have to have colour.
1: So how do you choose what that is?
0: It depends on uh, where I am emotionally and intellectually at the moment. So um, if I've just finished writing something really huge, like say I've just finished writing a book or something, then I need orange. (laughs) I know it sounds weird, but orange feeds me in a way. It just puts words back in somehow. But sometimes I need something different, like a you know, purple or red or something like that. And I, I always know what the color is. Sometimes it has to be blue. Sometimes, strangely, it must be blue. And so I don't leave on my trip until I have a piece of the color that I know I need. That's fascinating. Have you looked into why that is? I have never done that. Yeah, I just, that could be I, a
1: piece right there.
0: It probably could. I just I just have to. I often take things that I can lay on my bed, uh, So I, a piece of cloth that I can put on my bed.
1: There is something to that in creativity, though, right? I mean, there's, you hear about musicians who actually see music as in colour. In yeah. I know.
0: I don't. I don't see music. I know a lot of people need to take music, and I think when I was doing my book, Seasick, I did have music with me. Mm-hmm. I had a soundtrack that was actually mainly Neil Young. Oh,
1: yeah, there you go.
0: <laughs> yeah, but, but, um, but I don't do that now, and now it has to be colour. Colour. Oh, yeah. That's fascinating.
1: Is there a place in Canada that is kind of your mental happy place when you're feeling down or you're far from home or close your eyes and you take yourself there.
0: Absolutely, and it's the prairies. You know, I really have been to a lot of parts of the world, um, but it's the prairie that I find the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful landscape, the the thing that is endlessly, oh, it's just, it's a spiritual place for me. Mm. It's something about having a different sense of yourself in relation to the horizon. Often, when I'm on the prairies, you know, there's not much mediation between, there's not much human mediation between the sky and the, and the land. And um, it's not like here in Toronto, for example, where everything's built, you can look around you. And, and I love that too, but it's, it's built up, it's human-made. And on the prairies, it's, it's often, you, you just have a different sense of yourself and your scale when you're on the prairies. Yeah, so that's where I go in my head.
1: Well, listen, Alana Mitchell, thank you very much for this. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thanks, Dave. Thank you. That was Royal Canadian Geographical Society fellow, Alana Mitchell, on this episode of Explore. Music and production for Explore are by Robin Dumas of SoundShield Studios. And want even more great Canadian Geographic content? Visit cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe to order Canadian Geographic magazine. A subscription gets you six issues of the magazine each year with stories that will entertain, surprise, and educate you about the remarkable Canadian landscape, wildlife, and people. Subscribers also get bonus issues of Canadian Geographic Travel magazine and a free wall map of this great country of ours. Subscribe today at cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe.